When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hi, Chris. Hi, Farah. I can't believe we've come to the final episode of our series. It has been a journey. And actually, our listeners may be interested to know that this episode was, in fact, the first one that we recorded way back in February. Yes, this was recorded in person before uh, COVID-19 disrupted our lives and made meeting in person possible forevermore uh, and delayed the launch of this podcast series. So we should note that this was before Keir Starmer was appointed leader of the Labour Party and before Rachel was reappointed to the shadow cabinet as Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. And in the theme of today's episode, our quickfire round is about political leaders, which may be our most controversial round yet. Merkel or Macron? I work for a French company, so it's got to be Macron. Barack or Michel? I'd like to say uh, Michelle, but uh, I'm, we've got a bit of a beef, Michelle and I, because we had a book out at the same time and... Uh, <laughs> And I feel like she stole my thunder a bit, which I think was a bit unnecessary. Brilliant. All right. Well, someone that definitely didn't steal your thunder, Churchill or Attlee? Got to go with Churchill. Uh, Saved the world. Greece or Rome? I presume we're talking about uh, as existed 2000 years ago. Yes, empires. I'm going to go Greece, uh, mainly because the Roman Empire copied everything off the Greeks. Robin Hood or the Sheriff of Nottingham? Well, uh, as a a very law-abiding citizen, I've always thought uh, the Sheriff of Nottingham had a very bad rap. So I'm going with the Sheriff of Nottingham. Controversial. 
And Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great? Julius Caesar, I think, genuinely changed the world. And a lot of the things that Caesar did, started, um, created, we see their echoes today. And you can't, see that, can't say that about many people who were born 2,000 years ago. I'm Chris Hurst, and this is the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast, powered by Intelligence Squared. Joining me today is Labour MP Rachel Reeves. Rachel has an impressive and varied career, initially as an economist at the Bank of England, then declining a role at Goldman Sachs, becoming MP for Leeds West in 2010. She's the former Shadow Secretary of State for Worker Pensions. She's also the author of the fascinating and recently published Women of Westminster, The MPs Who Changed Politics. And to top it all off, at age 14, was the girls' UK chess champion. So, Rachel, the high point. <laughs> the high point, exactly. In three words, only three words, describe your leadership style. Never give up. If you could delete any word from the leadership bullshit jargon dictionary, what would it be? Sorry when they don't mean it. (laughs) Best decision you've ever made? To stand for Parliament. Uh, Which political leader do you most admire? Could be present, past? Barbara Castle. And why? Because uh, she was responsible for the Equal Pay Act, for child benefit and, and so many other policies that transformed women's lives. Who is the best Prime Minister we've never had or haven't had yet? Harriet Harman. Fantastic. So, Rachel, what persuaded you to leave banking for politics? Was it the money? (laughs) Well, I always um, had a love for for politics and and making change. I I joined the Labour Party when I was at school because I grew up under 18 years of Conservative government and I didn't feel that those governments represented me or people like me in the community that I grew up in. And so I felt that politics had the power to change things. And so it was always sort of my hobby, really, something I did at, at, at weekends and I went to conferences and the rest of it. But my day job was working in banking and financial services. And then an opportunity came to, to stand for, for Parliament. And I seized that opportunity because as much as I loved my roles, particularly at the Bank of England, and also I worked for a while at the British Embassy in, in Washington, it was politics that really drove me. And what does leadership in politics mean to you? And, and is it different to the leadership you saw and experienced in business? I guess the the first form of leadership in politics is at a local level. So you're leading volunteers and activists to go out and campaign and make the case in your community. And that's a different type of leadership because it's you can't motivate people by uh, the offers of increase in pay or a promotion because there aren't those sorts of offers to be made. And so you're really inspiring people by your ideas, by your party's manifesto, by your personal brand that someone wants you to be their MP in their community. An an MP, when I was standing, said this to me the first time, you've got to have people in your local community who would be really proud to say, Rachel is our MP and I know Rachel, I've worked for her. And so there is a sort of a personal loyalty you've you've got to build up. But motivating volunteers is quite different, I think, from motivating people in a a sort of traditional workplace. And then there's the leadership in in Westminster that you have to provide. And as you say, I, I served in the Shadow Cabinet when Ed Miliband was leader of the Labour Party. And 
you know, I thought that um, you know there was a possibility that we could form a government, and 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 that would have been a different type of leadership again. But I then had to make a really difficult decision in 2015 to stand down from the shadow cabinet because. I didn't support the direction that the party was going in under new leadership under Jeremy Corbyn. And so I made a decision actually at that point to step back because I didn't feel I could lead in the direction the party was going. Do you think there's a difference between winning elections and the the skills you have to have to win elections and leading the country? Well, actually, if you look at, um, you know, the, the, the leaders of, of my party, the Labour Party, you know, they were successful at winning elections. Clement Attlee won two, Harold Wilson won, I think, four, and Tony Blair won three. So they were good at winning elections, but actually I, I think all of them were pretty good at governing as well. And if you look back to their legacies, well, you know, 1945, Clement Attlee got elected mm-hmm. the National Health Service, uh, the welfare state, uh, his two proudest legacies and they are still by and large with us today particularly the National Health Service probably our most treasured institution as a nation Uh, Harold Wilson created the Open University introduced comprehensive Mm -hmm. education and actually the social liberal reforms around abortion gay rights uh, race relations they came in under the leadership of of Harold Wilson and under uh, Tony Blair the the national minimum wage the tax credit system to to lift people out of poverty and, and our schools and hospitals rebuilt so they were good at winning elections but actually all those years on, you can still point to the legacies mm-hmm. of those prime ministers. And for me, one of the one of the things we learn as we learn to be leaders is we learn from good leaders, but also we learn from bad leaders. You know, we learn different lessons. Uh, and in some ways, you know, if I look at my own experiences, I, I've probably learned as much from the... It was more painful, but I've learned as much from the people I consider to be bad leaders as good. I mean, can you relate to that? Does that relate through into politics? Of course it does. And, you know, if you look back to the Conservative leaders, you know, when I was first getting involved in politics, uh, of William Hague and, and Ian Duncan Smith in the late 90s and, and early 2000s, both of them retreated to the base of, of their, their party. Yeah. It was very blue-blooded Conservative yes. conservative. It was focused on a very narrow range of issues. Actually, you know, William Hague, it was 24 hours to save the pound. You know, yeah. uh, we're going to go into yeah. to the euro, which we didn't yeah. uh, under, under Tony Blair. And uh, and even actually Michael Howard, I remember the, those adverts, are you thinking what uh, yes, we're thinking? Yes, you know, yes. it was uh, dog yeah. whistle politics yes, appealing to yes. the conservative um, base. And, and the lesson from that is to win, you need to build broad coalitions. Yep. Of course, you've got to keep your base with you. And actually, Labour's lost some of its base hasn't mm-hmm. it, those yes, northern working-class yes. yeah. um, constituencies. You've got to keep your base, absolutely. Don't neglect well, them. To that point, so to cut, cut across you, but do you do you think, is Labour losing its base or is, or is the fundamental, you know, the, the, the division, if that's the right word, that we've had in our politics for, let's say, since the Second World War, maybe longer, is that division changing? I mean, are the dividing lines now different to where they were? Well, that's what it looks like. And actually, mm. that's the direction that that's happened in the United States. Yes. I don't want that to be the uh, the division here. You know, the Labour Party is called the Labour Party for a reason. It's the party of work, but it's supposed to represent working people in, in, in industry, new industries and, and, and old industries. And actually, we've lost our heart, I think, if we've lost those communities and, and those people and those traditions. But actually, they feel culturally uh, quite distant from the Labour Party at the moment and the Labour Party I think needs to start focusing a little bit more on the everyday issues that affect people's do you, but lives. But do you think that's value? Do you think that's at least valid values? Yes, do you think they see the Labour values. Party's values as being different to their values to an extent? Yes, I think that's the that's the problem and I, and I think a sort of relentless focus on ideology and, and on some of those um, you know cultural issues rather than the bread and butter issues that affect people's lives like you know what do people want? They want uh, work that offers 
offers them a decent wage with some security and dignity. Uh, they want strong communities where places where they feel at home. You know, some of the debate we're having at the moment about the decline of towns. You know, what's Labour got to say um, uh, about that? And they want their families to be uh, supported. And Labour have sort of stopped using that everyday language of family, community and place. So, of course, you want the answer to this question to be a Labour leader. But but what sort of leader do you want the country to have now? Um, and, and, and is that... Is that different to when you entered politics? The challenges facing the country today are, are so different to those that ushered Tony Blair into Downing Street in, in 1997. You know, we are such a divided country today. The Brexit referendum, in a way, unleashed politics that we hadn't experienced in this country before and has, you know, in many ways, I think, torn us apart. I think there is a, a real desire to unite the country. My friend Jo Cox, when she made her maiden speech in, in Parliament, said we have more in common than that which divides us. And actually, that was Joe's approach to politics. And it wasn't, if I'm honest, my approach to politics when I got elected. Okay. I was much more tribal than that. And, you know, a number of things, a referendum, Jeremy Corbyn winning the uh, leadership of the of the Labour Party and Joe's death made me reassess my approach to politics. And I have over the last three and a half years since she was murdered, try and learn some lessons from her style of leadership and the way she approached politics. And so do you think one of the ways that we as a nation can heal this division is we have to start by, to an extent, healing the division in within within houses of parliament. I mean, do do we need our do we need to be less tribal there? I think there is a lot of um, really fantastic examples of when parliamentarians across the political spectrum do work together. And actually, in the the, the book that I wrote, Women of Westminster, it, a lot of that is about some of yes. the work across parties to champion I mean, you pull the that causes through of, throughout of, the book. Yes, yes, and it was one of the most inspiring bits about doing the research for that book is some of those struggles that women in the country and women in Parliament led uh, to to get change for, yes. for, for for women in the country. Which so, I guess because there was. I mean, there still is relative. There's there's more, but there's still fewer women. But in then there was so much, so many fewer women. Yeah, so a hundred years ago, they had to ago, form coalitions. I suppose a hundred years ago, there was just one woman yeah. in Parliament, and for two years, um, almost Nancy Astor, a Conservative um, MP, was the only woman in Parliament out of mm. six hundred and fifty uh, MPs. Today, from the most recent election in December twenty nineteen, there are two hundred and twenty women. More Labour women MPs, am I right? Uh, yes, yes, um, and more than half of the Parliamentary mm. Labour Party are women, which is a fantastic achievement. But uh, it's still the case that uh, there's almost twice as many men mm -hmm. in Parliament as there are women. But what a change in the last century to go from one yeah. to 220 today. But the story of the early women, particularly in, in Parliament, was working together. And, and Nancy Astor was um, asked by her party, the Conservative Party, to campaign in a by-election for her party against the Liberals. But the Liberals had selected a woman, Margaret Winteringham, in the seat. And Nancy Astor refused to go and campaign in that by-election and said, Really? No, we need more women in Parliament from every political I'm not sure persuasion. That would now. <laughs> uh, no, maybe it, it, it wouldn't. But uh, she recognised that she couldn't alone represent the, the the views and the interests of all women in yeah. the country. And those women, uh, Winteringham and Astor, and then joined by people like Ellen Wilkinson and Margaret Bondfield from the from the Labour Party, championed together issues that affected women. So, for example, the first piece of what was described as feminist legislation was on the equal guardianship of children. And until the mid 1920s, in the case of 
separation or divorce, mothers had no rights over their children whatsoever. The children were the property of the father. Yeah. And Margaret Wintringham stood up in Parliament and made this really brilliant speech where she urged the men in Parliament to do a mental somersault and put themselves in the position where they desperately desired the custody of their own child but were denied it. And they managed to change the law so that for the first time, women had equal guardianship of their children. I get a, I get a great sense of what drives you. What gives you a sense of achievement? How do you know when you know? I, I kind of we were joking when we walked in. I, I kind of know if I go home at night whether I've done a good job that day or a bad job that day. How, how do you? How does that work if you're an MP? I think that the constituency link is really important. And actually, you know, I've been an MP for almost 10 years now. All of those 10 years have been in opposition and it can at times be very dispiriting Mm. because the manifestos I've stood on at four elections uh, still sit on the drawing board and never to be implemented, it seems. But um, at a local level, um, because of the austerity that we've faced over the last 10 years, there have been lots of threats um, of, of cuts to public services, to local services. And we haven't managed to save all of those. But there is a swimming baths in my constituency, Bramley Baths, that wouldn't be open today if I hadn't yeah. have worked with the community to protect that. And now it's owned by the community as a community asset. Uh, there's a new train station in Leeds, the first new train station in Leeds for 30 years. Uh, Kirkstall Forge in my constituency, a former engineer works and that's um, now being redeveloped into ha- housing and, and, and businesses and uh, again I worked with the so local council and developers change. yes to, to get that change in my community at a, at a national level um, going back again to, to my friend Joe Cox uh, when she died she was um, she was working on a number of projects and one of them was to tackle loneliness and social isolation in all, all of our communities and she was working as she did with a conservative MP to deliver that change and that conservative MP McKennedy approached me and asked if I would take forward Joe's work because she knew we were good friends and mm. I did that and uh, Theresa May who was Prime Minister at the time accepted the recommendations of um, our um, our report and our manifesto for tackling loneliness and the UK has the first ever um, Minister for Loneliness and a, and, a, and, a, and a strategy for tackling loneliness which make a huge difference particularly to older people but actually Joe said that young or old loneliness doesn't discriminate and so you can make a difference even from opposition if you work together to deliver change. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a fantastic segue because my next question actually is, you know, leadership is often considered to be a lonely place. Do you ever feel overwhelmed? You're definitely exposed um, because, you know, everything that you, you say uh, and, and do is, is open to, to public scrutiny and nothing you ever say is going to be uh, off the record or, or, or taken to be your, your personal uh, view. And so, you know, it's, well, it's a huge privilege, but with that privilege comes huge, I think, responsibility oh, yeah. as well. Again, particularly at a local level, because you're never not the MP for your local area. Mm-hmm. So um, on Boxing Day 2015, there were serious floods in my constituency. I was at home with, with my family and, and, you know, the news came uh, in yeah. that, uh, that the, the Kirkstall Road in, uh, in Leeds West was underwater. And so, you know, it was Boxing Day, but the next morning we were out in that community literally cleaning up the mess. And so, you know, you're always, you're always an MP, you, you are yeah. exposed and it can be a lonely place. But actually, I think my approach to leadership has always been quite collaborative. And certainly, you know, the things I'm proudest of on saving Bramley Baths, on getting the new train station and on 
loneliness, other people can also take credit for those uh, those victories and those successes, and that's a good thing. And actually, you wouldn't get those change that change. You wouldn't deliver that change unless you work with people, either your community or with other MPs, to deliver it. And that, I guess, is my approach to change. And I think that's how you get lasting change as well. In your ten years, then, what has been your most difficult decision? My most difficult decision was to stand down from the shadow cabinet in 2015. I'd worked incredibly hard for for Ed and I'd worked incredibly hard during the general election. In the general election, I was eight months um, pregnant, expecting my second child. And after the the leadership election, I had to make a decision Mm. about whether I wanted to carry on in the shadow cabinet and go straight back to work when my uh, youngest was just three months old or whether, because I hadn't backed Jeremy Corbyn to be leader, whether I wanted to take a step back and do something different. And I made that decision to take a step back. But uh, then unleashed upon me was a huge amount of, of, of criticism and abuse, again, yeah. from people on my own side. And, and I was called a red Tory. You know, why didn't I just go and join the Conservative Party? Just because I had some reservations about the direction the Labour Party was going in. And the Labour Party no longer felt like a broad church. It felt I felt very exposed, yeah. actually more exposed then than I did when I was perhaps in the leadership position yes. of the shadow cabinet. You write in your book uh, about how uh, w- women in politics have been treated through the years and uh, you certainly have plenty of examples of, of arguably women receive more hostility. All politicians receive hostility, women receive even more hostility. Uh, has that been your experience and do you think it's getting better, getting worse? You know, what what needs to be done about it? So I certainly think that the sort of lessons from, from history is that, um, you know, women are perhaps more exposed mm-hmm. and held to higher standards, actually, than the male counterparts are. And Nancy Astor, the first woman to take her seat in Parliament, put it very well. And she said, pioneers are picturesque figures, but they're often very lonely ones. And I think that was very much yeah. her experience. Yeah. She also said that the men in Parliament would have rather have had a rattlesnake in the chamber <laughs> rather than her. And I think she was almost certainly right, because she was yeah. beginning to break up this all-male, yes. cosy club that had yeah. existed for hundreds of, of years. Now, in the, in the book, I try and reflect on on the changes for women in Parliament. Now, there's a lot more uh, of us today. Harriet Harman, when she was first elected in 1982, said that there was a sisterhood in the country, you know, watching out for her, looking out for her, but there wasn't a sisterhood in Parliament because there were only 19 women in Parliament when she was first elected. There is a sisterhood now in Parliament. There's 220 of us. Again, Jackie Smith, when she was elected in 1997, the first woman Home Secretary, and she had uh, young children when she was first elected, and she said that she found those days in Westminster away from her family incredibly difficult but there was a strong group of women who put their arms around her and looked after her and actually if it hadn't been for them she said she's not sure if she would have carried on going the big challenge today for women in parliament is not the lack of sisterhood in parliament it's the abuse that is dished out predominantly to women in politics online but actually also in the real world as well Um, the most notable example of course is joe cox's murder outside Bristol Library and her yeah. constituency in 2016, just a few days before the, the referendum. But the man in prison for, for murdering her is not the only man in prison for threats yes. against MPs. Yes. The Labour MP in Lancashire, um, Rosie Cooper, there's a man in prison for plotting to kill her with a machete. 
in total four people have been imprisoned for threats against Luciana Berger. And in the 2017 election, research was carried out that showed that women received something like four or five times as much abuse online compared with men standing for Parliament. And and actually, if you were a, a black woman or you were a Jewish woman, that abuse was even greater. And so Diane Abbott, the abuse that she receives is off the scale as her um, her, her, her race as a, as yeah. a woman of colour interacts with her gender. Yeah. Same for Luciana Berger. Luciana Berger, of course, left the Labour Party because of the trolling she received from Labour Party people, I mean, is... but without the support of the leadership. The leadership didn't get behind I mean, her. I mean, it's effectively driven her out of Parliament. It, effectively, yes, she's, so she's an MP now as a result. Luciana and I got elected at the same time. Yeah. Very good friends, and it's heartbreaking to see her uh, leave Parliament. What can be done? Well, I, I think a, a, a range of things. Party leaders, and that goes for my party mm-hmm. and the Conservative Party, must take a, a much tougher attitude and a much stronger response on calling better out... Better leadership. Better leadership, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> so question. the Labour Party have got big problems with anti-Semitism. The Conservative Party have got big problems with Islamophobia. Mm-hmm. I right. mean, what a state for the Labour Party to be in yep. that we... Have, we are regarded by many people, and I think rightly so, as a racist party. And wow. that is a source of huge shame uh, to, to, to me and my party. And there needs to be stronger leadership from the parties and this, this um, the anti-Semitism and the Islamophobia and people with those attitudes. There's no place for them in our political parties. Yes. And, and they should be kicked out um, without a shadow of a doubt. I think that the social media companies have also got a responsibility. Yeah. I talked to people like Luciana and Jess Phillips and Stella Creasy and, and Diane Abbott about the abuse that they have received online and they report it to the social media companies and it stays there and then it gives permission for other people to say similar things and when you look at the sort of abuse that that women receive not only is there more of it but actually it's of a different nature Mm. it's much more violent um, and it's much more sexual I interviewed Theresa May when she was still Prime Minister for the book and she described it in a way which I thought really made sense to me and really cut through. So there used to be the bloke in the bar sitting on his own in the corner muttering into mm-hmm. his pint or half pint uh, and everyone would ignore him and think he was mm-hmm. a bit of a misfit. And now that man posts something on social media and people start following mm-hmm. him and they retweet him yep. uh, and they like him. And then he thinks, well, lots of people feel the same way. I'm not I'm not on my yes, own here. There's yes. a lot of people who feel like I do. And they feel then more empowered to carry yes. on saying those things and then it bubbles over doesn't it into what we see in the real world the problem of course is it it drives people out of politics and it stops people from coming into politics in the first place and it's the same in all walks of life why aren't there more women why aren't there more women in the boardroom and why aren't there more women in politics well first of all are they attracted into that career now there are there's a record number of women standing at the last election Mm -hmm. that's great the second thing is Do they stay there when they get there? And at the last election, what you saw is a number of women who were standing down uh, at a very early stage in their careers. You'll never know what they could have gone on to do. Luciana Berger, she re-stood, but she lost. Only been an MP for 10 years. My friend Gloria De Piero. But actually on the Conservative benches as well. Nikki Morgan, uh, Heidi Allen, who was a a Liberal Democrat by the end of her time in, in politics. Both of them cited in their letters of resignation the abuse that they'd received. And they weren't willing to put up with it anymore and you know both of those women had still a huge amount to give might not agree with everything they did in politics and the way they voted on everything but 
they were clearly, you know, people of, of character, with vision and ideas and charisma, yep. and they're no longer MPs and we'll never well, know what they could have gone on well, to achieve. Well, the only way we evolve our thinking is we talk to people whose ideas we don't agree with as well. And, uh, yes, <laughs> and as I say... That is the only way we change Yes, and, and, I, and I feel that more strongly, you know, than when I got elected for the first time in, in 2010, and partly because, you know, we're exposed to it. And some people will say, oh, well, you know, when MP, when you get elected, you get co-opted and you're, you know, part of the elite. But but actually, you know, you're exposed to, 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 to MPs yes. from different parties and from representing different parts of the country. Who have just as passionately held views as you do. Absolutely. Just, yeah. and, and, and actually, the motivations of most people who go into politics are honourable. They want to make change for their communities. They want to make change for the better. We might have a different view of how to, to do that. You know, I believe to get the most out of, of people, we need, you know, to empower them through strong public services, to ensure that they're paid a decent wage, etc. You know, there are other people who say, well, actually, if you lower taxes, people have more money yes. to, to spend. Yep. And actually, that's a valid debate. Yes. And there's uh, somewhere in the middle, I think slightly yes. to the left, <laughs> others will think slightly yeah. to the right, but there's a debate to be had. And it's your point as well, Chris, about you need strong oppositions to be able to have that, that, that well, debate. That's a, that's a nice segue to my, to my final question. So we're going to have an optimistic uh, last question. So looking forward to with the start of a new decade, looking forward to 2030, you have been tw- 20 years an MP in government for six by that point. Um, what are your, apart from the in government for six by 2030, what are your hopes, fears for the next decade for politics? My fears are that the divisions in society widen, that Brexit makes us poorer as a country, but also less influential as a, a country. My hopes are that we can bring people back together again, that there is a now a realisation that actually many people who voted to leave were sending a stronger message and a bigger message than that. They wanted to have their voices heard and that politicians now have heard those voices, have heard them loud and clear and are now going to put in a proper response, ensuring that there are opportunities in every town and city and village and region in the country, that um, that people have opportunities to thrive in the communities and the places that that they live and that no one is, is left behind in society in a way that I'm afraid has been the case for the last 40 years, really, since the deindustrialisation that started in the early 80s. I mean, I certainly hope, as a, as a northerner who has only ever worked in London, I certainly hope, whether it be Labour or Tories or both, uh, are able to rebalance our economy, certainly, away from ke- keeping a successful London, but having a, a more thriving and vibrant And it will be good for the whole country. Good for everybody. Because it's, sure. it's not healthy to have so much power and wealth yeah. concentrated in one place. And there are real challenges in London. You know, yes. if you are on a lower or middle income uh, exactly. in London, it's incredibly ha- hard to yep. get a, a house. And then you've got um, places in, you know, perhaps in the, particularly in the, in the north of England, but also coastal uh, towns where there's been a hollowing out, where people are moving yep. away to seek those opportunities, where they want to, people want to stay, but there's but nothing worth like staying yes. for. There aren't the jobs and the opportunities to stay for. So it'd be good for the whole country. And I hope will help heal some of those divisions. Now we're going to go to our Leadership Dilemma segment. Farah, my producer, has been gathering some leadership questions. So let's see what we have to contend with today. Farah, what have you got for us? Yes, Chris, we've had a lot of questions sent in to us. Our first one is, I've recently been promoted into my first real leadership role. 
As a female leader in a male-dominated industry, what advice would you have for me and how I assert my authority? Well, the first thing I would say is just to be authentic. There are so many different types of leadership and you've got to be yourself. Otherwise, you're not going to be consistent and people aren't going to know where you're coming from. So you have to decide how you're going to uh, approach this role and don't change who you are because you've got a, a, a new role. You've got this role because people believe in you and think you can do this so do it in a way that's authentic to you I can't do better than that uh, I think that leadership you know if you, if you spend your time thinking about all the things uh, that make you different or all the things that you might not quite know the answer to you're not going to fulfill the potential that you obviously had by getting there in the first place but don't feel you have to know all the answers I always think one of the most powerful things you could say at any point frankly uh, is I don't know you know don't be afraid to say I don't Admit, I don't know the answer, I don't know everything. And I think sometimes leaders uh, need to feel like they pretend they do. I actually think they definitely do in politics, interestingly. I think that more politicians should say, I've changed my mind, and more politicians should say, I don't know. I think it's a real it's a real bugbear of mine that the but both politicians and the press, there's nothing the press love more than catching a politician who's changed their mind. And I want politicians to change their mind. But anyway, that's a whole separate debate. <laughs> Our second question is, I work in the voluntary sector and on campaigns. How do you successfully galvanise people around a cause and still get stuff done? As I said in the beginning of my conversation with Chris, uh, motivating volunteers is quite different from other forms of, of leadership. And I think when I when I set out in the campaign to save the local swimming pool, uh, I knew that my pleading with the local authority and with the central government wasn't going to cut it. And so what I had to do was build a coalition of, 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 of people who were going to bring that story to life. And so I found people who learnt to swim there, um, who, and it's a, it's a Edwardian pool that had been open for over 100 years, um, people who used to go dancing there when it was a dance hall in the in the winter and a swimming pool in the summer. Um, I got all the local schools involved to uh, to write letters to the council, to, to do a march to the swimming pool with make their own banners because they all had their swimming lessons there. And actually they made the argument much more powerfully than I did. And so I think that if you're in the, in the voluntary sector and it's about campaigning, you've got to think of how you can bring the story to life and build that group of, of people who can really tell a story. So to, to, to have retained your seat in the Northern seat, in a, a, a Brexit seat when you were a Remainer, you must be a fantastic campaigner. What's, what's your secret? I think one of the things you need to do sometimes is to change the conversation that you're having with people. And Boris Johnson and the Conservatives wanted the last election to be all about Brexit. And actually, there was much more at stake. And so not only did I try and turn it on to another, other national issues, but it was about who do you want to be your local MP? So if you turn the conversation to who do you want to represent you, who's going to fight our corner and ensure that the voice of Leeds West is heard. Well, people knew that I could do that and I did it with, you know, a huge amount of energy and, and determination to, to, to get a good deal for our community. And so sometimes I think it's about trying to change the conversation about what people are looking for and what mm. people are voting on. I think it sounds, listening to it, sets also a great example of what I think leadership is about, which is getting stuff done. Getting stuff that's, done. That's what you've done. Yes, I remember uh, when I first stood for Parliament and I was knocking on doors and I managed to... Um, 
and get my mum to come out campaigning and it's not really her forte but anyway she came out and uh, she, this, uh, this one guy this one guy said to her politicians they're all the same they say one thing they do another they never deliver and my mum said not Rachel she's my daughter and she's been the same ever since she was little she says something she just gets on with it she doesn't care what the, and this man by the end I think he didn't know what to say <laughs> yes, yes. So, unfortunately I haven't managed to get her out much since so she was my, my hidden weapon in that election there you go there you go the tiebreaker if I'm really struggling I'm going to get my mum out Rachel it's been fantastic talking to you thanks so much for your time I know you're really busy and thank you very much for coming in thank you Chris I really enjoyed it And unfortunately, that's the last episode of the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast Season 1. We will be taking a short break now while we record episodes for Season 2, and the podcast will be back very soon. In the meantime, please spread the word, tell your friends and family to check out the rest of the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast and, of course, the book, and take care of yourselves until next time. Thanks and goodbye for now. doing right now perhaps you're in the supermarket maybe you're on a run or on the commute but wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing right now you're also listening to my voice this is the power of podcasts the ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio I'm Bea Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.